Cornerstone Presbyterian, if I haven't met you, I'm, my name is Campbell, pastor here at Cornerstone. It's great to have you with us this morning. A special welcome to our visitors. And if you don't already have a church where you worship and serve our Lord Jesus, then you're very welcome to join us here each Sunday at Cornerstone Presbyterian. As Simon said, you, if you are visiting, you've come right in the middle of a series on the book of Revelation. So I'd like you to open your Bibles, please, to the book of Revelation, the final book of the Bible, chapter 6. And we are in the thick of it. We're continuing our series on this book. And the plan is, is to keep going with this series until about September. <laughs> you thought I was joking. <laughs> Revelation chapter 6. And if you've been following the media, you'll see there's been quite a lot said recently about the assassination of Qasem Soleimani, the Iranian general, and the Iranian retaliation on American bases in Iraq. Uh, many missiles fired at American bases. And as usual, there has been three main kinds of media coverage. We've seen the news, and the news is, tells us what has happened. And we've seen, secondly, the analysis of the news. This is what caused what happened to happen. And then we have a whole lot of opinion on top of that. This is what should have happened, or this is what we think should happen. And as usual, the analysis and the opinion has been very self-contradictory. Some say that this whole thing was caused by Donald Trump's stupidity. Others say it was caused by his genius. Some say America should stay in the Middle East. Some say, say that they should leave. Some say that they shouldn't have killed the... Iranian generals, some say that they should have killed a whole lot more generals. The only, people, the only thing that people seem to agree upon is that the president needs a new barber. Otherwise, there's not much agreement at all about what is going on. The point is, we don't know why what is happening in the world is really happening. We don't know the underlying causes of these things. And we have no idea how it's all going to play out, do we? We don't know what's going to happen at the end of this week, let alone at the end of history. But as we come to the book of Revelation, we see that God does know. God knows exactly what is happening in the world right now. He knows what is going to happen at the end of this week, at the end of this year, at the end of the century, at the end of time, because it is his history. He is Lord of history. History is being unfurled according to his will and command. And God shows us what is happening in the world right now and what is going to happen in the book of Revelation. The original title for the book of Revelation in the Greek language is Apocalypsis. And Apocalypsis means to pull aside the curtains, to unveil. 
And what this book does is that it pulls aside the curtain so that we can see into the throne room of God, so we can see what God is doing, what is happening right now in the spiritual realm, and what is going to happen, and how history itself is going to end. And the book of Revelation tells us, it unveils the spiritual realm, it unveils the throne room of God, it unveils history and the future for us, not to satisfy personal curiosity. The book of Revelation is not some kind of holy horoscope. It shows us what is happening and what is going to happen so that we will fall on our knees before God in wonder and repent of our sin and trust in God and our Saviour and worship him with all of our heart, mind, soul and strength. That's why God shows us what is happening so that we will trust him and obey him and serve him. And that should be the response of every one of us this morning as we see what God is doing, that we will trust and obey and worship him. Let's do a little recap here. So in chapter 1, we saw a heavenly vision of Jesus. We saw that he is the almighty one. Do you remember that glorious picture of Christ in chapter 1? with his white robe and the golden sash and his white hair, his eyes that, that blaze like fire, the, 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 the great sword coming from his mouth, his feet of burnished bronze, his face shining brighter than the sun. We saw Jesus Christ in chapter 1, the almighty God. And where is he? He's walking among the lampstands, the lampstands representing the church. Our almighty saviour is with his church, is ever-present and is watching over us. And then we, we saw in chapters 2 and 3, Jesus' seven letters to the church, written to seven churches in Asia Minor some 2,000 years ago, but which applied to all the church for all time. And we heard our saviour in those letters calling his church lovingly, lovingly calling and urging his church to perseverance and repentance. And then in chapters 4 and 5, the veil was pulled aside and we looked into the very throne room of God and we saw God in all his holiness upon the throne and we saw a scroll sealed. How many seals? Seven seals. And the scroll is God's plan for history, for all time. And John wept because he didn't, couldn't see anyone who was able to open that scroll, to break the seals and to enact God's plan for history. And then the Lamb of God, the Lamb who was slain, stepped forward to break the seals and to enact the plan of God. And so when we last looked at the book of Revelation in chapter 6, we saw those first four seals being broken and opened and we saw the four horsemen coming from heaven, the white horsemen, Jesus himself, riding out to conquer. 
And then we saw the red horse, which brings war, the black horse, which brings famine, and the pale horse, which brings death. We saw the judgments of God being unleashed on the earth. And Christ, through these judgments, waking the world up to our sin and our need of God's mercy and salvation. So that's where we've got to. And now we're up to Revelation chapter 6, verse 9, and the opening of the fifth seal of the scroll of history. Let me pray. Almighty God, speak to us now, we pray, from your word. Open our ears to hear your voice speaking to us now. Amen. We read in Revelation chapter 6, verse 9, that when he, that is the Lamb, opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. And so we are in the throne room of God. And if you, know, if you know the Old Testament, you'll see that there's so much about the throne room that is reflected in the, the tabernacle of the Old Testament. And just as the tabernacle had an altar, the throne room of God has an altar as well. But what's under the altar? The souls of those who have been slain for God's word and for the witness they had borne. The Greek word for witness is martyr because that's what, that's what generally happened. That's what generally has happened in history, that those who have witnessed to God's word have been martyred for God's word. And as we look at the last 2,000 years, we've seen that untold thousands have been killed for their Christian lives and their Christian witness. Now, why is that? Well, Jesus said in John 15 that a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. And Jesus was persecuted, ultimately by the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish ruling authority in Jerusalem. They demanded his death. Why? Why did they persecute Jesus? Why, why did they want him dead? It's because his miracles and his popularity threatened their pride, it threatened their authority. And time and again, he exposed the hypocrisy of the Jewish religious leaders. Woe to you, he said, because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry. And you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. And this is why Christians have been persecuted ever since. Jesus is Lord of Lords. We obey him always and above every other authority, and this threatens the authorities on earth. Christians have always been seen as a threat by dictators and authoritarian leaders who can't bear 
that, that someone might look to a higher authority than them. And that's why we see Christians being persecuted today in the West, because our allegiance to Christ threatens the authorities. It threatens the authority of Hollywood. It threatens the authority of Twitter. Threatens the authority of Piers Morgan and other self-appointed authorities who know what is right for all people. And the Bible, which we teach and which we revere, continues to expose society's hypocrisies. For example, the Extinction Rebellions, which we see going on, as, on around us, which I believe there's a, there's a deep hypocrisy to this, because the Extinction Rebellion demands that we, we save the children of the future, while saying nothing about the millions of unborn children who die each year. And women's protests, which demand equal rights for women, and that's a good thing. But the same protesters are so willing to tolerate and even to fight for the rights of pornography, which demeans women at a very basic level. You see, the Bible exposes these, these deep hypocrisies in our society, the way we tend to strain out gnats swallow camels. And that's why the Apostle Paul said, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, not may be persecuted, but will be persecuted. And the book of Revelation shows us where the souls of the persecuted are. They're under the altar in the throne room of God, under the altar. What's the meaning of that? Remember, the book of Revelation shows us what is going on in the heavenly realm with, with symbols. What's the symbolism of this? What's the symbolism of the, the, the souls of the martyrs being under the altar of God? Well, in the Old Testament tabernacle, People brought animals to be sacrificed on the altar. And, and, and generally speaking, these animals were sacrifices that propitiated God and took away the sin of those who brought those animals. But the sacrifices could also be thank offerings. They could also be offerings that were given up just to say, God is good. And here is my, my gift to him. And that seems to be what the souls of the slain under the altar of God are. They are recognized by heaven as thank offerings, as God's people giving their lives in thanks to God, bravely giving their lives because of their love and allegiance to God. The Apostle Paul said, Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And that's what these martyrs have done that we see in Revelation chapter 6. 
And they cry out, we read in verse 10. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Now, this is not a demand for personal vengeance. It is a demand that God manifest his justice. God is a holy God. God is a just God. And it is not just that his people have been persecuted and slain for witnessing to the truth about Jesus Christ. And so they call out to God, rectify this. Bring justice upon the earth. And how does God respond? How does the Lord respond? Verse 11, they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed just as they themselves had been killed. What's the symbolism of those white robes? The white robe represents righteousness. Although these martyrs have been found guilty in the eyes of a sinful world, they have been found righteous in the eyes of God because they are clothed with the righteousness of Jesus. And they are told to rest a little longer. That word rest could also be it also mean be refreshed. It's God reassuring them. Wrongs will be righted. Justice will come. Don't fret. It will happen. But I want you to notice something alarming. At the end of verse 11. Rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers and sisters should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Note that although God says justice will be done, that right now the killings are not over. There are more who must suffer. There are more who must die for the sake of Christ and the truth of Christ. However, it would be a definite number until the number of those who were to be killed is complete. A definite number. Now, what does this tell us? This tells us that, that, that when people die for the sake of Christ, that this is no accident that this does not catch God by surprise, but this is his plan. He, he has the number already arranged of those who will die for the sake of the gospel. It's a definite number. And this means that martyrdoms don't challenge God's plan. They fulfill it. They fulfill the plan of God for history. In spring, our garden was full of poppies. I love seeing the poppies in November. But then the poppies die, the petals fall off, the green plant turns brown, and what's left? 
instead of a flower, there's a little hard pod. Looks dead, doesn't it? But then you take the lid off that pod and it's full of hundreds of poppy seeds. That means for every poppy that dies, hundreds of seeds, maybe thousands, fall to the ground, ready to come up the next year. And this has been God's plan all along for the church, that many would suffer and even die for the sake of Christ. But this would not be outside of God's plan. This would not be a catastrophe, but this would be part of God's plan, that every death would bring a mighty witness to Jesus Christ. And others would see people dying bravely for the sake of Christ and for the truth of Christ. And this would draw many, many more to Jesus. And doesn't the history of the church bear that out? You could pick almost any century in the history of the church. I'm thinking of the 16th century in England and the Marian persecutions of the Protestants in England. And hundreds were burned at the stake for the sake of Christ. But that led to the conversion of hundreds of thousands as England saw the bravery of those who chose to die rather than to forsake Christ and his truth. And so this fifth seal, brothers and sisters, this fifth seal tells us that many have died for Christ and many will die for Christ. And this is part of God's plan. It's not outside of it. Persecution is nothing to fear. It can be frightening, right? It can be frightening when, when people challenge us you believe that? You hold to those values from that old book? It can be alarming, it can be scary when people start to question and then they move beyond questioning and they start to attack and, and to criticise. And many Christians in our own city find their jobs under threat, career pathways closed to them, young Christians you find that the schoolyard is a, is a frightening place to be as a Christian. But God says, don't fear, don't fear. Many of my people have died in the past and many more will. And I intend this. This is how I, I wake the world up to see the truth of my word and the truth about Jesus Christ. As the world sees my people responding with courage and steadfastness and peace and even joy to persecution and suffering, the world will see that there is something far greater and bigger than this world. And they will see my son. Who here is willing to suffer for Jesus? Who here this morning is willing to die for Jesus Christ? Who here this morning, sitting in this place, and this is maybe the hardest thing of all, is willing to give up property, their belongings, 
the money for Jesus Christ. The martyrs under the altar of God inspire us, don't they? They challenge us and give us a sense of joy and confidence in the future. Well, in response to the, the martyrs' appeal for justice, we see with the breaking of the sixth seal, justice coming. We see justice being delivered. Look there at verse 12. Then he, that is the lamb, opened the sixth seal. And I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth. The moon became like blood. The stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. And the sky vanished like a scroll that's being rolled up and every mountain and every island was removed from its place. What are we seeing here? We are seeing decreation. We're seeing the work of God in Genesis chapter 1 undone. Remember, God set the sun and the moon and the stars and the heavens and created the sky and created the dry land and the islands. And now we see creation being undone. This is the end of time, the end of the world, the end of history. We are not Hindus who believe that that history goes round and round in a circle, never ending. No, the Bible tells us that there is a beginning, a middle, and there is very much an end point coming, an end of time, an end of history. And that's described here, decreation in preparation for final judgment. And what happens? Verse 15, then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals, the rich, the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks and the mountains. The rich and the powerful scurrying like cockroaches trying to find a place of shelter. Everyone, in fact, slave and free. And people calling out to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us, hide us. Why? Why at the end of time will there be this, this vast multitude of people calling for the very mountains to come crashing down upon them? Isn't this the greatest fear of every human being is, is to be buried alive? And yet this is what these people desperately want. Bury me. Cover me. Why? From the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And... Who can stand? The sixth seal describes universal rectification 
the final justice of God coming upon the earth. Now, I referred before to some protest movements that are trending at the moment in our society. Now, what drives these protest movements? We can't entirely dismiss them, can we? Because, because so often what people are asking for is justice. We want what's fair. We want, we want justice. We want what we deserve. This is what so many in the world are out there protesting about. I like to follow the news in France. <laughs> in the first 15 minutes of every news item is protest, 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 and more, riots in the streets, people crying out, give us our rights, give us what we deserve. But when we ask for, for our rights, when we ask for justice, when we ask for what we deserve, sometimes we forget what that really means. I, I, I can picture someone getting uptight. In fact, that sometimes I see it in the RACT magazine. Someone will write in about road rule breakers. These people should be punished. These people who break the road rules, it's intolerable. And I can picture someone saying that. And I can picture someone responding and saying, well, I'm glad you raised that because we've had a camera in your car for the last 10 years. And we have a record of every time you went over the speed limit and every time you rolled through a stop sign and every time you picked up your mobile phone at the red light, we have a record of that. And we've added up the fines and we think you should be able to cover those fines over the next 300 years of your life. <laughs> uh, you, you, you get the point, don't you? Sometimes when we ask for justice, sometimes when we ask for what is right, give me what I deserve, we forget what that actually means. Do you demand justice? Your deserts? Well, God made you to love him with all your heart and all your mind, all your soul and all your strength. And you were made by God, handmade to love those around you as thoroughly as you love yourself. And you were made in the image of God. And that means that you and I, we're all called to love and to forgive our enemy. Made in the image of God to sacrifice self for others. And God is holy. And so, as we read the word of God, we know that all we deserve from God is what we see right there in Revelation chapter 6. The wrath of God and us doing all we can to flee from it, which is impossible. Who can stand, is the question. Who can stand before the wrath of God at the end of the world? Not the atheist. Atheism doesn't count when you're facing the wrath of God. Not the agnostic, oh, I'm not sure if God's there or not. You will be. 
Not the rich and the important, not the self-confident. No one can stand. We'll all be trying to hide in caves and all calling for the mountains to cover us unless we are clothed with that white robe, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that's where I end this morning. That's where I end. Because Revelation 6 has shown us the future and it's shown us that more must die and more must suffer and you and I must be willing to be a part of that. But it shows us the final judgment and the catastrophe of the final judgment of a holy God upon a sinful world. And the only ones who will stand are those dressed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We'll be looking at that more carefully next week. Again, if, if, if you don't yet have a church, we hope you'll be here next week. Come and hear and come and see in chapter 7 this great multitude who've been saved by God and clothed in the robes of white washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. Those are not looking to that final judgment with fear or trepidation, but with confidence and joy. And it's my prayer that every person in this room this morning will face that day and look forward to that day with that confidence and joy that we can and will have if we know Jesus Christ, if we trust Jesus Christ, if we have taken upon ourselves the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which he gives to us by faith. Let me pray. Almighty God, we thank you for showing us the future. Lord, help me, help all of us to face um, trial and persecution, not with fear and anxiety, but with confidence and joy. And I pray that our joy in, in suffering and trial will be a great call of hope to those who do not yet know Jesus Christ. And Lord, we thank you that you are going to bring final justice. Every wrong will be righted. Every good deed that hasn't been rewarded will be rewarded. Every evil deed will be judged. Thank you that, that you are a righteous and holy God. and You're going to make all things right. And thank you that we can look to that day without fear as we are dressed in the righteousness of your Son, Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, I pray for everyone sitting here this morning. It is my earnest prayer that everyone will be gathered around the throne of God in joy at the end of time, rejoicing, be clothed, in the white robe of Jesus' perfect righteousness. And we pray in his name. Amen.